Welcome to episode 411 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Stephanie and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express today do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our family, our friends, our pets. Pretty much, maybe not even ours, uh, three weeks from today. Joining, we've got a great panel for the roundup. Bobby Chesney, uh, National Security Law Specialist and Dean Designate of the University of Texas School of Law. Bobby, it's great to have you. Welcome. Okay, yes. I, I, demonstrating his UT roots right from the start. Uh, and David Chris, founder of Culper Partners and uh, former uh, head of the National Security Division of the Justice Department. David, good to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. And Michael Ellis is uh, formerly with the House Intelligence Committee and the National Security Council, now a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Michael, good to have you here, too. Thanks, Stuart. Great to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. It's going to be a pretty government-focused discussion today, just given our panel and um, some of the stories we're going to cover. So why don't we jump in on uh, the one that's getting what I think is inexplicably broad coverage, which is uh, Russia warning that a military clash will come if it's hit by U.S. cyber attacks. Bobby, is this just uh, shadow boxing in response to what I think of as last week's shadow boxing from Nakasone saying, oh, we're already hunting forward and we've been running operations in support of Ukraine? Both of those things sounded like people were fighting with somebody they weren't sure was there. I definitely think it's kind of a weak brushback pitch by the Russian foreign ministry. I, so as you say, it comes on the heels of General Nakasone's statement that you know, all I said was, we're, quote, we've conducted a series of operations across the full spectrum, offensive, defensive information operations. And of course, everyone seizes on his very generalized reference to offensive operations, which could mean a, a vast array of things, many of which are would not be particularly escalatory, certainly in comparison to providing armaments, providing kinetically actionable intelligence, perhaps that sort of thing. But what we've got here is, you know, in the aftermath of yet another defacement of a, of a Russian government ministry website, I think in this case, the housing ministry was, uh, their website was made to say glory to Ukraine. This sort of thing has been happening periodically to Russian government and and private sector entities during the war, there was a Russian foreign ministry statement that basically said attacks on critical infrastructure and government sites, we're not going to put up with it. And then some really wildly, hilariously hypocritical stuff about how the West is militarizing cyberspace. The West is using it increasingly as a venue for interstate competition. And and then the brushback pitch, you know, this, quote, increased the threat of a direct military clash. We'll see. But as you say, Stuart, I I don't think this is a particularly good reason to get worked up. In fact, it continues to be the case that the outside the borders cyber impacts, though not non-existent, continue to be more constrained than many observers were fearful might occur when the war was just a possibility on the horizon. Yeah, it feels like like tacit bargaining and maybe a lot of talk about national international law has kind of set a stage for where people think, you know, I, we can do this, and but if we do that, they might react badly. There aren't a lot of surprises in the talk so far. Michael, uh, yeah. uh, what's your thought? Yeah, well, pay attention also to to who said this in the Russian government. It wasn't Putin. 
It wasn't Lavrov, the foreign minister. It wasn't Putin's spokesman, Peskov. It was like some mid-level guy in the foreign ministry, the head of inter international information security, who who's not even significant enough to get his name included in the story. Um, <laughs> Uh, this, uh, as Bobby noted, this feels like really the obligatory Russian response. Nakasone said something. I, I, I think they probably have some sort of internal rule within the, the foreign ministry that uh, you have to trot this guy out every time the Americans say that they've done something or they might do something. And I agree with Bobby's point that if the Russians are going to look for um, a reason to escalate, if they're going to accuse us of breaching our duty to neutrality under international law, there's ample grounds for them to do that based on the armaments that we're providing to Ukraine, the intelligence that we're sharing with them, not to say we should stop doing any of those things. They're um, uh, obviously all important things to do for our security. But you know, the cyber operations aren't leading the list of grounds to escalate if the Russians are looking for one. Yeah, it sounds like they're basically saying, uh, you know, if you continue to make escalatory press statements, you can expect firm press statements from us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With a healthy dose of hypocrisy, as usual, from the Russians. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, this is a, a lot of this is, is going to be government posturing, some uh, of which was taken pretty seriously in the press. Here's one that I thought was interesting, Bobby. The FBI doing a deep dive on the NetWalker ransomware, where they got into the back end, uh, which was in Bulgaria, and they started looking at all of the invoicing and communications and uh, all of the spreadsheets about who'd been compromised. So they had a lot of data. And the headline that came out of that was only one quarter of the ransomware victims reported to the FBI that they'd been victimized, which I thought, you know, a kind of lobbying for more calls to the FBI. I and and not particularly persuasive, given that they were looking at somebody who had global ransomware operations. So actually, there were about 270 victims in the U.S., and 115 of them reported. That's closer to 45% than to one quarter. And a better example of how often the FBI gets called. I'm not shocked by that figure. Yeah, I actually thought you could eat. So first of all, you're quite right that the headline got the number and the percentage totally wrong because it was comparing apples to oranges a bit. The, the ratio is, you know, close to 50% as near as we can tell. Now, there's some ambiguity in just how many entities were victimized here because the, the way they're uh, inferring the number of victims, you can tell directly where there were communications back and forth. And then you have the sheer number of customized builds that the attackers were creating. And in some cases, we're told... They, they had two or three different models set up for each victim. So it could be there's something more like 600, 700, 800 victims total, but it's at least 450. And so you could easily have written the same headline and say, you know, nearly half of all ransomware victims in the United States in this particular model actually picked up the phone and, and somehow miraculously managed to get through to the right people at the FBI, <laughs> which is itself actually kind yes. of a, a triumph. And to me, there's, if anything, I, I don't think it's obvious that this is a story of, well, look how bad we're failing at this. Would it be nice if there was a complete awareness? Perhaps so. But it's actually a higher figure than you might expect, given there's no clear compulsion to do it currently. And as the article emphasizes, there are a lot of business reasons why the entities that are victimized don't want it to be known, don't want to raise the issue. 
some some of the other data that's in the reporting. This all came out at RSA, where an FBI special agent and one of the AUSAs who led the case out of Tampa were both there at RSA, kind of giving a behind the scenes, sort of a VH1 behind the music account of uh, how this particular investigation unfolded. The markdowns on the asking price for the ransoms and the amount actually paid was pretty steep. I don't know if it was surprisingly steep. I'm not familiar off the cuff with the data on other markdowns. A 50% markdown is not surprising. Yeah. So one lesson here, don't pay full freight for heaven's sakes. Another interesting insight is of the entities that were victimized that did notify the FBI originally. We're told there are 115 of these and that only 15 who did pay actually told the FBI that they paid in the end, (laughs) uh, which makes it look like the payment rate's about... uh, 13% if you took that at face value, but the records show that in fact, um, the payment rate is at least around 50%. So one thing that we do think, I think you can take from this is people may call the FBI. That doesn't mean they're going to explain when they decide to go ahead and pay the ransom. Yeah. More and more, it seems to me that the FBI had a golden age in cybersecurity. It was probably back when uh, uh, David was uh, at DOJ, when people just assumed, well, Cause I've been- Cause and effect, vic- brother. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I was gonna say it's falling off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I, but it, 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 people just said, I'm the victim of a crime. Who do I call? I guess I call the FBI. And so the FBI just got defaulted into a lot of investigations. And now we've got 20 or more years of experience with that. And it's still not clear that the FBI can really do a lot for you. Uh, They do do some things. I don't want to say they don't. They can often, if they have the expertise and some of the people you're going to contact do, they can tell you, is this a a ransomware outfit that's likely to uh, actually deliver if you pay the ransom? They can tell you whether the forensics indicate that this is a ransomware gang that is subject to sanctions. And if they say it's not, then you can be more comfortable that you're not going to get sanctioned yourself for paying them. But mostly, they don't do what the police usually do when you report a crime, which is solve it. And I think that has made it less likely that people are going to call. And I think the FBI is starting to feel really pressured by the fact that now CISA can offer you some expertise about the future and maybe about remediation. And it used to be the FBI just wiped its feet with CISA, but not anymore. Hmm. And so I think they're sensitive to this and still struggling to figure out a way to get back in a position where they just were the default people who were called. And because they were called, they knew the most. And so inside government, they knew more about anything that was happening than anybody else, and so they it just fed their turf. And I think that whole dynamic has collapsed on the bureau. Well, it's uh, well, it's a good thing if we get a little bit intergovernmental competition that drives people to be the best service provider for those in need. And if the same period you're describing, Stuart, also witnessed the rise of much improved private sector resources. A full picture of what's going on with these NetWalker victims would require knowing what happened with the ones who went straight to film the blank private sector entity to help them and what kind of result did they get. Fair credit to the FBI here. Once they got the back end server, they did uh, get the keys. And according to what the officials said at RSA, I think they were able to help some people get their files back gratis. And so that was a nice result in that one case. Yep. And they do have some tools that nobody else has, uh, the ability to go to court and get seizure orders and things of that sort. Uh, They're not without resources, but they're just one of many now. And I think that 
isn't a comfortable situation for them. And indeed, uh, now we, we also heard from, was it at CISA, Michael, that said, we're not getting enough ransomware incident reporting. We Cold need team. a lot yeah. more. That's right. I, and, yeah. you know, you kind of say, well, what are you giving the people who report? Uh, and I, I, I'm not sure we've got the answers for that. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I I chuckled a little bit when I read the story as well, because, you know, it's a little sense of deja vu that we just went through a, a lengthy debate in Congress about cybersecurity incident reporting that culminated in a statutory requirement for critical infrastructure to report these incidents to CISA. And now it's over to CISA to write, and they've got two years under the statute to write the reg, and then another 18 months after that to get to a final rule. And you've got the, the CISA senior official, Eric Goldstein, going out and saying, well, we're not getting the reporting that we want. You know, fair, but sharpen your pencils and get back to writing the reg. You know, then you'll have a requirement. And, and you know, this is why the, the statute was passed to require the reporting to go into DHS. And, you know, to your prior point, Stuart, on the FBI, there actually has been some recent reporting as well that FBI has been uh, working well. They say that both they and DOJ are engaging with CISA in, in writing this reg and that they hope to be ahead of schedule. But, re you know, recall the sour grapes in the FBI at the time this uh, legislation was considered in Congress, issuing essentially their their own statement of administration policy counter to what the rest of the executive branch's view was, saying that this legislation wasn't worth the candle if the report didn't go directly to the FBI. Uh, they yeah. see that they're changing their tune now and, and recognizing the new reality that these reports are going to go to CISA at least once this gets around to writing the rule, and that the FBI should work cooperatively within government rather than um, assuming that they're always going to be the first stop for victims. Well, I, I can't remember the stages of grief, but after denial and anger comes bargaining, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much where they are. And, and I think to Bobby's point, Cisa Goldstein said, uh, well, why should they report? Because we'll know more and we'll be able to give out indicators of compromise. <laughs> but I think that's exactly what people are getting from the forensics firms. Probably going to be faster, maybe sloppier, but faster to react to that. And they can go from knowing what the indicators are to helping you actually implement it. And obviously, there are people, there are companies that can't afford the stuff that the forensics companies would do for them. So there's value in it. But, you know, you're now asking people to come in and give information to uh, the, the government so the government can help other people, not you. Well, not add that there's also the the state, local, and and other governmental entities that are also in that bucket. That we really need CISA to be able to perform that role too. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep going with all of our medley, our pageant of officials. These are basically stories where you just fly out to San Francisco and you sit in the audience uh, at RSA and write the story, one story after another. I think these are all RSA speeches. So we are basically uh, replaying greatest hits from uh, R RSA. Uh, I went to San I'm Francisco. just curious why there's no, like, what did Stewart do at RSA story from the press? That's what we're missing. Yes, because I stayed completely away from not only the press, but practically everybody who had anything to do with cybersecurity. And instead, I took grandsons to uh, a series of San Francisco events and, you know, the Muir Woods and Alcatraz and the best magic shop for a good a thousand miles. And you know, went bicycling in the rain forever, but it was great. And I did spend a little time with a few cybersecurity people. It was really fun. Actually, there's this really interesting kind of sub niche of pen testing that exists to help people break back into the wallets that they stored all their Bitcoin in 
oh. uh, 10 years ago mm-hmm. and forgot the password for it. At least they didn't throw it in the dump. But if you still got right. your thumb drive or some aspects of your Bitcoin, it turns out, not surprisingly, that 10-year-old security can sometimes be... Increasingly, people are making money doing that, and I spent some time with some of them. Uh, that was kind of fun. DNI, April Haynes, her speech was really a downer. <laughs> uh, as far as I could see, she mostly said cybersecurity is just getting worse and worse. There are better tools. We've got ransomware people with profit motives breaking into stuff. The privacy lobby hates us. So what's the solution? How about more information sharing? And, and to be fair, she wasn't talking about you should give us more information. She was saying... Uh, we should be doing more information sharing. And that sounds like, I, I, I get the sense, uh, Michael, that that's a theme inside the government, that they've made a decision. We should share more stuff that is we could otherwise call classified. Yeah, necessary, but not sufficient to deal with the various cybersecurity threats. Uh, you know, the problems she's outlining aren't new. I, I did take note that she mentioned that there have been intrusions of even sophisticated networks. I wonder if she was acknowledging that, you know, sometimes even the U.S. government's most sophisticated security is still going to be a vulnerability and still ways for, for attackers to exploit that because, you know, frankly, defense is very, very hard in cybersecurity. The attackers only have to be right once and the defenders have to be right every time. And, you know, yes, information sharing is good. We just talked about how we may see a little more of that between the private sector and the government thanks to these incident reporting requirements that are now in statute. And, you know, maybe we'll also see more going from the government to the private sector with the Biden administration's uh, very forward-leaning declassification policy on Russia-Ukraine matters extending into other spheres to start reducing the amount of classified information uh, and pushing some of that out into the public so that the private sector can can make use of it. But again, I don't think that's really going to be a silver bullet for this problem either. You know, the dynamics aren't going to change until we establish deterrence, and you know that might involve more of those offensive operations that General Nakasone was talking about as well. Yep. And to be fair, Rob Joyce um, also gave a talk and was a little more explicit about how NSA, which is where he works again, is sharing more information and basically blaming it on the forensics firms. Is that, is that what he was telling us, David? That's how I understood it, yeah. And it is part of this larger theme of rebalancing the importance of ongoing intelligence collection and preservation of sources and methods against the use of intelligence actively in various ways. And you see it across a whole bunch of fronts here, as Michael was saying. And they seem to have discovered, I think, a sense that it is more valuable to you know use intelligence even when that use, whether it be publicly or in some other way that the adversary can detect, could put your you know, your sources and methods at risk. If you've got a microphone in Vladimir Putin's TK and you start, you know, preempting all of his false flag operations in Ukraine, it's really effective, keeps your coalition together and puts him on his heels, but it also might cause him eventually to figure out where the microphone is hidden and switch tea kettles, which would then lose your access. And so that is just one more dimension to this question. And I think what Rob was basically saying is that in the cybersecurity front, this other phenomenon that we've all seen over the last you know, f- several years, which is the incredible rise of the private sector where they, you know, they own the battle space, they have uh, better, in some cases, access to information than the um, intelligence agencies, and they have far fewer rules that govern that access, and they've got analytic abilities too. 
And so it's an odd thing, I suppose, to have, you know, NSA using its uh, bespoke exquisite accesses to get something and then putting it out and everybody believes that, you know, Mandiant or Cyber Reason or one of those outfits produced it. But that did seem to be what Rob was um, saying. And so I wonder how I wonder if this doesn't go back a long way. You know, the really big eye-opening thing on cybersecurity was when Mandiant did a detailed breakdown on the Chinese attacker or whatever the the unit was. It was kind of the first time anything like that had happened, and it had helped that the the guys had broken into the New York Times, so you guaranteed good coverage. Uh, But (laughs) I I thought that there probably was at least a wink and a nod from the intelligence community about releasing that. Maybe they didn't get Uh, the information from them, but they they surely were told, yeah, that's okay. Go ahead and say it. I mean, I I think if you, depending on how far back you look, you can see the waxing and waning of public-private partnerships or whatever it's now fashionable to call them, and the cooperative, you know, cross-vetting of information and then release of information. I think, though, for sure, you're seeing, since 2013, when things really hit their low point, obviously, thanks to Fast Eddie, the general rise in more cooperative efforts. It is slow. It is painful. We've talked about some of the missteps and difficulties, but there seems to be a general trend towards more partnerships and cooperation between government and the private sector these days over, say, the last you know several years. I think in part because the private sector firms think that the alternatives to rule of law-based systems and the U.S.-led international rules-based order is not good for business, so they're reassessing. So you're seeing that trend, and I do think you're also seeing, even in a more recent time frame, the joy of active use of intelligence. I mean, I am sure there are IC veterans in there wringing their hands over the risk to accesses and sources and methods and things that are hard to generate, but I also think there are others inside rubbing their hands together in glee at the just the sheer joy of messing with Putin and others in the ways that they have done. So I I think there's a notable trend here, you know, in the last few years that seems to have some energy behind it. And they're going to start basically adapting their TTPs to the environment in which we find ourselves and the opportunities that are available. But I definitely also agree with you, Stuart, that there's an up and down and, and, and it's not totally new. And if you go back far enough, you can find analogs. There was a lot of good cooperation, I'm told, and have read in unclassified sources only between uh, government and AT&T before the breakup, you know? So if you go back far enough, you've got really robust togetherness, and then you have a relatively fragmented period, and maybe we're moving not all the way back, but more towards something that more cooperation like we used to have. Yeah. We'll see. It would be good if we could find ways to integrate across that seam better so so that when forensic firms find something, find evidence, or maybe even when they develop tools, that those tools automatically trigger or automatically flag actions that the intelligence community uh, or FBI are the only ones who can use. We're not good at having the fire department arrive while we're still using our fire extinguisher and finding ways to integrate and automate that process uh, so that they're actually going after the bad guys in the bad guy's own space and the bad guy's own network uh, on behalf of people that have been victimized. That would be ideal. And I'm sure there's unease on both sides, but that's where we should go. 
defend forward domestically, Stuart. Is that what I hear you uh, advocating for? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think uh, I, I just think we should have a faster and we, we should have automated fire alarms that ring in the fire department. Right. Right. Well, it's interesting to compare that to the way that the Brits have been a little more forward, publicly at least, than we have been with respect to what they call the National Cyber Force, which blends military MOD and GCHQ capabilities. They're making no bones about the fact that they go after what is effectively international organized crime. Yeah. And and we've had little glimpses of that. We had a few cybercom interventions that got a little bit of attention. We don't really know what it is we're doing yet. It's not in our public accounts, but watch that space for sure. Yeah. Well, they still have an establishment. They they can still they can still probably get the people who matter in, in a room and reach consensus. There <laughs> there are some uh, there's some advantages that they've got that we don't. Yeah. All right. Oh, well, it's, it, so there was a good story. This is a little old. Uh, it's maybe ten days old instead of a week old uh, in the New York Times about how uh, U.S. technology is turning up in all these Russian weapons, and that used to be a really good thing for Russia, but now maybe it's not because we're not sending those products, or at least, actually, we're not reporting exports to Russia of those products. I'm not sure how much comfort you can draw from the drop-off in reporting as opposed to uh, actually looking at what's getting to Russia. Michael, it's for sure the case that it's a vulnerability, but I wonder if it's a vulnerability that's going to take so long to show up that the war will be effectively over before Russia runs out of American ships. Yeah, perhaps, although the war shows no signs of reaching a quick conclusion. So it still may be a chance yet for this to have an effect. I, I thought that the really interesting thing about the, the effects here is that it's not just exports from the U.S. or from European nations. You know, through the use of the, the foreign direct product rule, just the same way we did with Huawei in the Trump administration, that these export control restrictions choke off the ability for even foreign manufacturers to export to Russia using U.S. technology. So if there's a, 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 a semiconductor manufacturer in Taiwan or Malaysia that is using you know, this licensing technology from the U.S., even that manufacturer is restricted from exporting to Russia based on these restrictions. So you know, there's some indication that this is really having uh, a significant um, effect on the Russian economy. There's no data from the Russians these days, as you noted, but an independent researcher found that their imports of manufactured goods are down you know, roughly half from, from where they were before the war. But you know, this stuff takes time to really bleed into their economy. You know, They can use the stocks they already have for a while, and it's months before you start to see an effect. What I wonder maybe the, the second order consequence is if there are um, you know, Chinese companies that decide, hey, you know, we're willing to take the risk of U.S. sanctions. We're just going to flout the U.S. export control system. And this really encourages a greater alignment between the Russian and Chinese economies, you know, sort of pushes those two together. You know, so far, the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, has said that we haven't seen signs of Chinese companies flouting the export control restrictions, but it will become more and more lucrative for, for them to possibly do so as the Russians become more desperate. Yeah, uh, but I, I think, you know, Russia's not that big a market. I, yeah, and the market. consequences of getting on the wrong side of the U.S. government on something like this 
pretty significant. I think, I mean, our hold on all this technology is increasingly indirect, all right? There's U.S. technology that's been taken by a Dutch firm to build the machines that build the chips, that they've sold those machines to Taiwan, and Taiwan is making chips and selling them on to people. And we're saying, well, that's obviously U.S. technology. You can't sell it to the Russians. So far, we've made that stick. The Chinese are going to sooner or later break that hold. They're working very hard to build uh, machines that can make chips as well as to make chips of their own. But for now, and against Russia, it's a pretty good uh, tool. All right, let's shift gears to uh, yet, yet another RSA speech, but I think maybe the last one we're going to talk about. Leonard Bailey from CSIPS uh, gave a talk about the good faith defense, not defense, the, the Justice Department's announcement that they weren't going to pursue good faith to security researchers under the uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is, of course, the right result. And he, what made the story is he said, yeah, we talked to Congress about writing that into the law, and we couldn't figure out a good way to do it. And Bobby, actually, I, I kind of agree with him. I don't think there is a good way to write that in. Yeah, this is tough. All right. He's, so there's Leonard, who's who's been at CSIPS forever and knows this as well as anybody, and effectively saying that what we can do is kind of develop in a common law fashion in, in actual applications where the lines are here. But when you're talking about the inherently blurry situation in which some outsider is is engaged in hacking of some kind, and in the circumstances, perhaps a reasonable person could look at the interchange between that person and the victim and say, well, this looks like hacking followed by extortion or hacking followed simply by a, a clumsy attempt to secure a bounty. And, and if the intervention or the thing is detected before they even get to the stage where they're negotiating and it enables the attacker to say, well, hey, I was planning to approach you for a bounty. I wasn't going to extort you. You know, this is a famously murky area. And so Leonard was acknowledging that and basically saying, look, that given the circumstances, maybe the best we can do, at least for now, is to make more clear that we have a sensible policy in general. And then in the actual application, we can all learn something that maybe one day will help us draft a statute. In the meantime, it's not a statute. And more importantly, even if it were a stat, well, if it were a statute, presumably, then it could control the behavior to some extent of the private sector as well. And that's the big issue always with these right. CFAA definitional disputes, because the private sector can take a look at this policy and say, that's nice. CSIPs won't recommend prosecution, but we're still going to send a cease and desist letter and or initiate a complaint. And so, as always, the boundaries of the CFAA it helps if DOJ is taking some particular position that's sensible, but that doesn't bind the LinkedIn's and the others who might decide that they have a different view of things. Yeah, I used to think that there was some value in having a, uh, um, a, a civil cause of action under the CFAA, but increasingly, I wonder what it, it, it's rarely used. Whenever it's used, there's probably a better statute that could be used. And the Venn diagram where you've got only the CFAA and nothing else is probably a bunch of cases that shouldn't be brought. We'd probably be better off getting rid of the civil cause of action. I certainly agree that we should at least consider separating the two. Whatever efficiency gains are made by just having the one standard and using that both for crime enforcement and for civil enforcement, it seems they're offset by the potential uh, dangers that arise when the definition can be tugged one direction by one side and another by the other. 
right. Well, this is this is the story that I actually found most interesting. It was in Wired, and and Bobby, I hope you'll jump on on this as well. But I'll direct myself to Michael first. Uh, this is the argument that smartphones have totally screwed up the law of armed conflict, and particularly the distinction between civilians and combatants, because any civilian with a smartphone in his pocket, especially one that has an app supplied by the Ukrainian government, can say, hey, by the way, you might want to put some iron right here and turn in the enemy that they just bicycled past. And the, the article suggests that it's obviously a war crime just to shoot the guy on the bicycle as he goes by. I'm frankly not so sure that that's irrational, though. If you've been the subject of artillery attacks after past bicycle drive-bys, I think it'd be very tempting from a military point of view just to say nobody goes past us because they all have cell phones in their pockets. Yeah, that's as you noted, a really interesting story. There's an app called the E-Enemy. Well, I should say the app is called Dia, and there's the E-Enemy feature of the app. Where if you're a Ukrainian, you download the app and you can report Russian troop movements into Ukrainian armed forces. So it's raising really interesting questions about the laws of war, about whether these people are becoming participants in hostilities, you know, at at least for the the few seconds or a few minutes while they have the app open and are reporting, reporting movements to one armed force. And, you know, you could take that hypo that you just gave with the the bicyclist reporting an artillery strike. You could change that to the bicyclist has a grenade under their coat, right? And yep. you know, U.S. forces have encountered exactly that kind of scenario, right, in Afghanistan and Iraq of civilians, you know, who are concealing a weapon, join hostilities for just long enough to carry out an attack against U.S. forces and then blend right back into the population. And and this leads to really tricky questions. I think this issue is ripe for, for further study, you know, for, for people to really give it a lot of careful thought about the best approach under the laws of war to these questions, because it's going to become even more widespread. I mean, you, you saw at the start of the Ukraine conflict, even beforehand with the widespread use of commercial satellite imagery, right? You have companies like Maxar and others that are, are putting out satellite imagery at a level of detail that was previously only available to governments. So you, know, you can imagine in hostilities, if the Russians or the Chinese were to start shooting down all the uh, commercial satellites that might possibly provide imagery to, to U.S. forces, right? But how is the U.S. government going to govern its relationship with these you know, open source intelligence providers, right? Are we going to sort of impose these more restrictive rules that, you know, force really like the same standard that we would apply to government collection onto these open source um, uh, intelligence sources? If so, I think we're going to lose a lot of the value that we might obtain from really the widespread use of smartphones and all of the many sources of data that can be uh, of use to the U.S. government and, and allied governments from everyone walking around with an intelligence collection device in their pocket. Yeah, but it cannot be the case that international law of war says you can shoot the guy if you know he's got the e-enemy app open and otherwise not. Bobby, uh, yeah. what is the answer here? I'd run through the analysis this way. Some parts of it are real straightforward. We clearly have armed conflict. It's international in nature, so we have the full spectrum of the usual law of armed conflict rules, the principal distinctions in play here, and we're talking about a situation where we have people we're conceding are civilians, at least as the starter position, and a large number of them are enabled with particular efficiency to engage in what we can call civilian spotting behavior. So they're civilian spotters. If what they're doing is reporting troop movements and other intelligence that is not 
directly resulting in or involving direct participation in the application of kinetic force, then I don't view that. At, it's something that could be the basis for them to be detained, et cetera, but it's not a basis for shooting them. It doesn't count as DPH if there's that break between what they're doing and when, you know, and how force might be applied. If on the other hand, they're calling in what amounts to artillery strikes, then they are, as we say, DPHing. They're directly participating in hostilities. Certainly during that window while they're doing it, they've waived through their own actions, they've waived their immunity. Could a state who thinks this is happening enough just assume that if you see somebody with the phone anywhere in, in your perimeter or in a certain zone, can you just assume they're DPHing? I don't think that's actually how the law of armed conflict works. I don't think you can make that assumption. That doesn't mean you can't take all sorts of security-oriented actions when you observe that sort of thing. It just means you can't assume that they've waived without a little more basis than that and shoot the guy. But you can certainly go up and detain that person and inspect them, figure out what's going on. So it's not a choice between putting up with the behavior entirely and killing on sight, at least not in most cases. Although we did, I mean, in, in Iraq, we had a variety of roadblocks. And if cars came at the roadblock too fast, we did shoot them. Right. But that, that seems a distinguishable scenario from the scenario where there's somebody just pedaling by and you see they've yes, got their okay. phone to their ear. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, I can distinguish those two. <laughs> okay, fine. All right. I, I, I think to make the stewards hypo thornier, right, you'd have to have like the history of like the last time the guy came by on the bicycle by the checkpoint, the artillery strike came in 30 seconds afterwards, right? Some indicia that there's like a connection between right. the activity that you're observing and, and the hostilities, right? It's just that, the, that this actually is evidence that the civilian is, 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 has, has shed their civilian status to directly participate. But you know, right. the, I don't think this is going to make a difference for the, the Russian calculus. I think they're just going to shoot everybody. It's probably what the Russians are going to do. But the more interesting question is what, is what the U.S. Uh, and, again, you know, allied, allied forces, you know, militaries that, that are going to care a little bit more about the laws of war, what, what we are going to do um, in future conflicts when the same phenomenon occurs. Well, are we going to prosecute really... these guys? Uh, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have an opportunity to prosecute people who have shot bicyclists, and they're going to raise this as a defense. And the question is going to be, what's our argument going to be? I really think we should underscore what Michael said. It's the first thing we all should have said is the Russians don't care about, right. about the nuances of this. All right. Well, we did not prosecute. Gehring for the air war, the civilian air war, even though that was the most obvious violation of then extant law of war committed, uh, well, maybe not the most, but one of the most. And we decided not to prosecute him because after a year or two of taking it, uh, the British and then the Americans said, oh, yeah, bombing civilians? Yeah, we're all for it. And so we did ultimately decide what the law of war is for attacks on cities by our decision not to prosecute for the Luftwaffe's attacks on London. It gets complicated because of the role of belligerent reprisal. And, and then the question of whether that's still a legitimate move, that is to say, if you've been doing acts and it's illegal at a certain point, you've opened yourself up to a response in kind. And that arguably plays some role there. But I'm no expert on how those fine lines were drawn in World War II. Yeah. All right. Last story that I thought would we should chew on is a, a, a story disclosing that the U.S. government had ordered travel companies, the people who maintain passenger name records and reservation data, essentially, to report on a Russian hacker who was outside the U.S. and on his travel 
And then they finally caught him traveling in a jurisdiction where they could actually extradite him, Israel, if I remember right, and did. The Secret Service had used the All Ritz Act for this, and it was presented, I think, by Bloomberg as kind of shocking that the, the government could spy on somebody's travel that way. I was less troubled by this. Uh, and David, I'm guessing you've used orders like this in the past. Uh I would say this is a perfectly understandable use of authority that raises some increasingly interesting legal questions. So, I mean, as you said, you've got an indicted fugitive who's hiding out, I think, in Russia, but he sometimes goes abroad. And so there's a warrant for him, and the Secret Service wants to get him if he goes to a, you know, a friendlier country than Russia. Maybe they get a red notice, or if it's Israel, they can grab him there. And it turns out that, I guess, two companies handle about two-thirds of all air reservations and have records on them. So they get an all resort in aid of the arrest warrant that they have on the guy for weekly updates over a two-year period. And uh, so they have to sort of you know, notify the Secret Service whenever they get a reservation request for this. And so it's, it's totally understandable if you, know, you have a fugitive, you want to go get him, and you, you know, want to make sure you know when he leaves his safe haven uh, and becomes subject to your reach and the, the long arm of the law. But there's a couple of issues here. The first is, you know, we're all familiar with the Apple San Bernardino case and the use of the All Ritz Act to compel assistance from the general public or here, these two reservation companies in support of authority to do a thing in, in the Apple case, a search warrant under Rule 41. And the best case for the government is the one they cited in their application. Here is the New York telephone case from the early 70s in which the Supreme Court said that the All Writs Act could support an assistance order served on the phone company to help implement a pen register surveillance. And the court basically said, you know, there's an explicit provision allowing for assistance in a full-blown wiretap case where they're getting the content of communication. So here for this lesser pen register intrusion, which is just getting the numbers you dial, we think the All Writs Act can be used. The funny thing about it is that at that time, uh, early 70s, Congress had enacted just one technical assistance provision in the Wiretap Act in which a phone company could be directed by statute to assist with the implementation of a wiretap. But since then, you know, Congress has been on a veritable tear of enacting technical assistance provisions across you know, each subchapter of FISA, basically. And in other areas, they've put together the Stored Communications Act, which functions a lot like a technical assistance provision when you get a warrant and you want stored data. And they've modified Rule 41 any number of times to the point where it's quite a long and difficult rule to read. And so there's a little bit of a question, which is in that environment now, having updated statute so many times, you know, is there some negative implication to be drawn from the absence of a technical assistance provision for Rule 41 that really just explicitly applies? I mean, does the congressional failure become something uh, that would suggest you shouldn't fall back to the far more general and much older All Writs Act to fill in the gap? And you know, whatever the answer to that question, and the lawyers could have a field day with it. You know, there's a second order question here, which is this is an arrest warrant not a search warrant. And it's maybe weird to some people to turn an arrest warrant into an ongoing stored communications production warrant every two weeks for two years. So that's why it's a little weird. Having said that, again, I want to say I do understand how the US government got to this because 
There might be some limits on using more traditional tools like grand jury subpoenas in a post-indictment environment. You know, you're really not supposed to use them right. in that way. And I don't know whether you could get ongoing production. You can't always. And then for a search warrant, you'd have an ongoing production issue over time. And I don't know as there would be probable cause for any given two-week period of having records on this guy unless he really is uh, traveling all the time. So I, I can sort of understand how the government just said, look, this is obvious. We have a fugitive. We have an indictment. We have probable cause. We've got an arrest warrant. We're doing everything right. We need to sort of effectively call out those guys with e-enemy on their smartphones and watch this guy when he bicycles past the border of Russia so right. we can get him. And turns out we only need to have two people subject to an order. You know, one is Sabre and I forget the other one's name, uh, you know, a travel port. And so if they just let us know, Whenever he makes a flight reservation, we'll be able to, you know, roll this guy up. The Ulrich Act is a flexible law, and, and so I think that's what they thought. But I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, in this case or one like it, a motion to suppress and, you know, a good deal of litigation over it. Maybe I'm overestimating the complexity here, but at least I found it to be interesting to sort of think about adapting old law to uh, the new world. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with most of what you said. I, I do think the the period from like 1990 to 2013, when we saw all of those technical assistance uh, provisions added, was a time where there was a modus vivendi between industry and the government. And industry said, well, sure, we'll give you this stuff as long as you give us process and immunity. Yes. <laughs> so if you want if you want a process law and you include a really broad immunity plus you pay us plus for, pay for us, what it costs yeah. us, we'll take that deal. And that sort of went out the window with Snowden and the uh, Apple attack. Uh, and the Apple attack on this would require that Saber say this is really hard. This is expensive. It's complicated. It's bad for us to do it and that's a burden on us, judge. We shouldn't have to do it. But it doesn't sound like it's much because they, they already have a record by name of the guy and they just have to say, do we have, you know, let's search for that name today. Right. right. I don't think it's that demanding, or at least you don't get the sense uh, from looking at the documents that are public that it is a massive undertaking for them and they're, they're not creating massive risk. I think the best defense of this might be to say, hey, this is just like 702. We don't need records like this on people in the United States. We've got a hundred ways to keep track of them here. These are people who are outside our jurisdiction and who have fewer rights under American law anyway. And we have no way to know what they're doing except through this little keyhole that we're looking and, at. And, and just remember uh, also, Stuart, I mean, like, unlike 702, where people get fussy, here you have a grand jury returning an indictment and you have a judge on the strength of that issuing an arrest warrant, which is, you know, predicated on an individualized judicial finding of probable cause. So, yeah. I mean, as a substantive matter, it, it, it does not strike me as uh, terribly troubling to think that, you know, given what the predication that exists here and the process they've run through, that this person abroad, uh, you know, could have their travel records obtained. It's more just like, how do you make the law work? And whichever way you go, you're going to be bumping into issues. And if we could maybe update our law instantly and efficiently, there might be an easy solution. But I'm still waiting for ECBA to get fixed. And, you know, <laughs> right? So. 
I, I said that to April Doss, who just became the uh, NSA general counsel. Oh, yeah. I, she said, yes, it's very exciting. I said, it's going to be exciting until the day you realize that it's your job to get uh, Pfizer renewed. Yeah. Uh, that's not something I think anybody can take for granted anymore, getting oh, no. 702 back. Yeah. Maybe one and a half to, uh, to travel agent systems. That will be the answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. David, thank you. Bobby, Michael, this was terrific. I really appreciate it. For our audience, we are still looking, although we're going to start narrowing down the choices soon for somebody who wants to work on the podcast as an intern. So we're in the market. Send your uh, CVs to Podcast at steptoe.com. I want to thank Weissman Zamba Design for our music. This has been episode 411 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.